Stand clear of the closing doors, please. In a Brooklyn fractured into speculative storyscapes, you never know what could be lurking around the corner. Fantasy, horror, sci-fi, or the just plain weird. Join Professor Brad Overstreet, Senior Junior Lecturer Sam Spellingbaum, Professor Emeritus Calliope DeGamowitz, and Inquisitor James Earl King II as they discover the stories drifting in and out of your reality. Episode 2, Into the Occipital. Like a building fell on you. Oh, right. So, uh, you better, you know, invite me again. So what is it today? It better not be more microfiction. I had to call the exterminator the last time. Why are you still in the hallway? Like I said... Don't just stand there. Close enough. So look, I'm going to keep this as quick as possible. Spelling bounce back, the multiverse is doomed... There are white versions of me, and there must be some serious interdimensional gerrymandering going on because... Hey, hey, are, are you listening? I said there are white versions of me. Hmm? Oh, yes, spelling bounds back in the universe is ending. Uh, multiverse? And what is with you? Ah! Oh, Christ! It's simple, so simple. Men biting dogs all the way down. My darling. There once was a man from the sticks with a knack for hitting the bricks. What is Overhype doing on your couch? Are those national inquirers? You leave him alone. And they're Atlantics. He'd write with great speed, though he'd bury the lead. Yes, of course, of course. He's talking in limericks now. We're in the middle of his recovery. Nothing he says is going to make any sense. James is a vampire now. 
I, uh... See? And that was what drove all the clicks. Of course it was, wooshy-wooshy. And here I thought I was going to be the strangest thing in the room. What can I say? He's just so... helpless. Yeah, that sounds healthy. Okay, look, Florence and the Machine Nightingale, obviously the Egghead's still hard rebooting, but some of us have real problems. Now, I... Now, you just don't move a muscle and I'll be right back. Yes, yes, I think a pinch of Pinsker is just what the doctor ordered. Ooh, is that our flag was still there? I... Ow! Why, you... I mean, hiss. Don't touch that! Really? You're just going to feed it to overbaked? Ugh. What fools these mortals be. Yes, that'll do nicely. A splash of post-nationalism to jog the critical faculties. That Our Flag Was Still There by Sarah Pinsker Originally published in the 2019 anthology If This Goes On Edited by Kat Rambo It would have been a normal day if the flag hadn't up and died on us. Not even halfway through the shift, and she'd been up there on the platform, wide-eyed and smiling from the stars and whispering to herself in the way flags usually do. And then she got a funny look on her face. A moment later, her vitals went all screwy. She's tanking, I said, trying to control the panic in my voice. I'd trained for this scenario, but never encountered it in the five years I'd worked in the National Flag Center. Breathe, said Maggie Gregg from the console beside me. Can you get her under control? I'm trying, I said, though I couldn't figure out the problem. I tried and failed to stabilize her chemically, then let Maggie deliver a series of jolts through the flag's screen suit. It didn't work. We have to bring her down. Maggie said. I looked over, surprised. Maggie's dark skin had gone pale. She'd been here 20 years. She had to know the protocol for a dead flag. Even I knew it, though I'd never had to use it before. And she must have been through this at least once or twice. The flag can't come down until sunset, or the visitors on the mall would freak out. So we have to lead the dead one up there and trust the visitors can't tell a quiet living flag from a dead one and loop footage from earlier in the day with the sky color corrected to the current weather. I didn't respond and she didn't say anything more. We brought the flag in at sunset, like always. It was harder than if she could have assisted in the transfer, but not too much harder since most are pretty glassy after a day up on the platform. Removing the ink from someone whose liquids are pooling instead of pumping turned out to be tricky, too, but we couldn't hand a body back to a family in that condition, with the skin settling red, white, and blue. I hope that doesn't come across as unpatriotic or disrespectful of the dead. I set the colors draining, same as I would have on anyone. I have two jobs. One, administer the colors under which falls monitoring and retiring the colors as well. Two, administer and monitor the stars. When the dead flag came off the flagpole, I had the easy part. I felt worse for Maggie, who had to call the family. I did my part and watched Maggie do hers, and afterward offered to buy her a drink. 
To my surprise, she said yes. The first time she'd said yes in five years working together. It took a while for us to finish the paperwork and make arrangements with the team who'd take the body home. By the time we left the flag center, the National Mall was empty except for the police bot that chased us down to inform us the mall was closed to visitors. It scanned our center IDs, which were enough to appease it. We didn't pass any people before we hit Chinatown, where the sidewalks got busy again. We hadn't discussed our destination. I couldn't tell if she was leading or I was, so things got progressively slower and more aimless. And finally, I had enough and pointed up 7th. That one okay? I pointed to the pewter spoon. It's got a long happy hour. In all the times I'd gone out with the other techs from work, Maggie had always said she had to get home. I didn't take it personally. She lived far away, and she had grandkids living with her. But I'd assumed that meant she hadn't spent time down here at all. I was surprised when she rejected my suggestion, not that place. How about Forte? I'd never heard of Forte, but she was the one who had to call a family with bad news, so I agreed. She took me past the arena, under the big screen nightly flag replay and the news tickers listing the day's top patriots, past the Friendship Arch. We walked faster than before, which told me I'd been right about neither of us leading earlier. Two blocks farther, around a corner to a side door. The place we stepped into was dark, with a utilitarian wooden bar down the room's length and six tables against the opposite wall. Four customers sat along the bar, one talking to the bartender, two talking to each other, and one nursing a beer. No windows, no pictures, no screens anywhere, nothing on the black walls at all, which is to say the next thing I noticed was the absent flag. Not over the bar, not on the back wall, nowhere. Don't say it, Lexi. I shut my mouth. I offered a drink to a colleague if she wanted to have that drink in a bar that broke the law. If she trusted me enough to take me to a place like this, she didn't want me pointing out the obvious. What are you drinking? I asked, feigning nonchalance. She pointed to the last tap handle, a cheap local lager. I motioned the bartender for two while Maggie shrugged off her coat and chose a table. She raised her glass when I handed it to her to killing people and notifying their families by phone. Jesus! I sat without removing my jacket. I, I can't drink to that. Sorry. It was an awful day. How about to another day closer to retirement? We toasted, even though she was way closer to retirement than me. What is this place? I asked. It's the only bar within walking distance where I can have a drink without having to watch the day's flag reruns. Maggie, I lowered my voice, it's illegal not to have a flag screen. I'm not stupid. I know that. But I'm not going to sit here and watch someone die for the second time today. Jesus, I said again. We're not supposed to discuss that anywhere anyone else can hear. But she had to know that, too. Look, I know you believe in what we do. I had to interrupt. You don't? I don't know what I believe anymore. But I thought when you offered to grab a drink with me this time, I thought maybe you felt the same way I did. Like, maybe this isn't how it's meant to be. 
she took a long drink. Do you know what the husband said to me tonight? He didn't cry or yell or curse at me. He thanked me, Lex. He said, the risk is worth the service. Is it, though? Of course. Nobody is forced to enter the flag lottery. She looked at me. But how many understand there's a chance they won't survive it? But that, that's a tiny risk compared to the benefits. When did this happen last? She could have been hit by a car or gotten food poisoning or slipped on ice, but those wouldn't leave her family with a lifetime stipend without a lot of litigation. They'll be fine. Think of the respect they'll get when people find out. Respect. And an empty chair. I'm sure they're thrilled. She lifted her beer again. It was almost empty. I still hadn't touched mine beyond the sip when we toasted. I stole a look at the other patrons. They were drinking in a bar without a flag. Maybe we wouldn't get in trouble, but I couldn't risk losing my job or my own chance at being a flag someday. I'm sorry, Maggie. I know you had a rough day, and I wanted to commiserate, but I think maybe I need to get going. Next one's on me, too, okay? On my way out, I paid for a third beer, wishing as my chip passed the reader that I carried cash so there wouldn't be any evidence I'd been there. My metro ride home took a full hour thanks to a delay to remove a woman for complaining about the president without a free speech permit. For a moment, I thought it was Maggie, though I'd left her in the bar and she lived in a different direction. My local feed flashed the names and faces of the patriots in the next car who had turned the woman in, along with her name and transgression. We all applauded. While the train sat, I watched the flag stream beside the system map. It was still early in the rerun. She hadn't died yet. She looked young and vibrant and healthy, her skin rippling in red, white, and blue, her screen suit, too. Her eyes had that look from when the star's drug kicks in. Fever patriotism, pride, like she had waited her whole life for this moment, which she probably had. She kept repeating, I am my country, and beautiful, beautiful, the autopsy would say what had gone wrong, an undiagnosed heart condition, I was guessing. I could still picture her face when she died, peaceful, happy, high. That led me to Maggie on the phone with the husband, the husband thanking her, the fact she'd found that more upsetting than crying. I wanted to understand. My stop was the last on the line, and it was another 10 minutes walk from there. Sometimes I thumbed a ride in bad weather or close to curfew, but the night wasn't cold for January. As I left the metro station, I stole a look up at the flag screen above the entrance. She wouldn't die again for hours yet. Pounding music greeted me through thin walls as I approached the apartment, courtesy of my louder roommate. When I flipped the foyer light switch, the flag screen came on full blast, too. Usually kept it muted, but a roommate must have turned up the volume. I tried to catch the flag's words now that she was talking. She hadn't spoken much at all, not in prep or on the platform. Hopefully she hadn't said anything unbefitting a flag in her last moments. 
I'd been watching her stats at that point, not her mouth. Nobody said anything negative while on stars, though. Who could, feeling that good? I wished I knew what it felt like. Retired flags always reported this perfect day feeling, a lingering gladness, something to look back on and smile. I considered what I'd do with the money and prestige if I ever got chosen. Get an apartment on my own without roommates, thicker walls. I keep my job, of course. The flag payment was enough money to go without work, just enough to live a little better for a while. Visit Charleston, let my parents get a little reflected glory. Someday, maybe. Back at work the next day, Maggie didn't mention what had happened, and neither did I. The day's flag was a talkative one, bridging our silence. A middle-aged white trucker from Dayton, as opposite the previous day's grad student as possible. She hadn't said much through the whole process, whereas this guy couldn't shut up. I had to buy white pants and a white shirt. I don't own anything white. I spill on myself the first time I wear it, and then I can never get, get it back to how it was. When I pulled the pants on this morning, I noticed a tiny smudge on the thigh and spent 15 minutes scrubbing. Almost made myself late, and I couldn't even call since we're not supposed to carry anything but our ID. I didn't know which would be worse, the smudge or the lateness. I kept picturing some reserve waiting to take my place, all spotless and timely. He went quiet for a moment, and I realized he was waiting for reassurance. You did the right thing, I said, still concentrating on assembling my trays and lines. We get a lot of nervous talkers. Better a tiny spot than arriving late. I can't even see it. In a minute, I'm going to start the colors. You'll feel a tiny jab. He looked relieved. I'd hate to get stuck back in the hopper. Do you even get re-entered if you blow your chance, or are you eliminated forever? Ow! Anyway, it's what, a one in 350 million chance of being chosen? Minus the people who are too old or too young or need to opt out or whatever, or the however many thousand people who have been chosen already. I'm no mathematician, but the chance of my name going back in and then getting picked again? I'll be damned. That last was said gazing at his hand as the nano ink spread out from the injection site. I passed him the relay. This goes around your wrist. Fitness band? Similar, it sends us your vital signs so we know how you're doing. Maggie started her procedure next, while I checked that the nano-ink colors and the relay conversed with each other and my monitor. Everything looked fine. She held out the screen suit. I'm going to need you to remove your clothes and put these on. You can change behind that curtain over there. He looked surprised for the first time. Why did I have to buy new white clothes if you're not going to have me wear them? People get nervous if you tell them they're going to have to take their clothes off. More nervous than the needles or the nano. Better for you not to dwell on it. Didn't you feel proud today marching in here in those crisp whites? They'll be waiting for you when you come down and everyone will recognize you on your way back to your hotel tonight. Now there you go. I'll hand you the uniform and help you if you need me to. This goes on first. I know it looks like a diaper, but it's called a mag. 
a maximum absorbency garment like astronauts use. Astronauts are cool. That's it. Now this one. The opening's in the back like a hospital gown, but it'll close, I promise. I'll help you close it. It's delicate, so take your time. Don't tug. It amazed me how her patter calmed them. Maggie helped him in that no-nonsense way she had, making it clear she wasn't touching him, she wasn't making sure it was put on right. It wore like a not-quite-sheer body sleeve, silky but warmer in, than fleece in winter and cooler than cotton in summer. When she turned it on, the e-ink began its flag course, matching to the colors in his skin. Cool, he said, recovering from the indignity. And soft. Can I buy this to wear around the house? We didn't have any mirrors or reflective surfaces in the room, a lab disguised in soothing spa colors. Flags got weirded out seeing their lumps and bumps in this setting. Better to look at the recording we sent home with them. Well lit, color corrected, filmed from a discreet distance. Still, this was always the moment when they stood a little taller and smiled imagining what they'd look like up there, shining. Maggie opened the next container. These are special contact lenses to protect your eyes. It can get bright out there. Can you put them in, or do you want me to? The flag frowned. Hmm, would you mind? I'm not big on eye stuff. Always had perfect vision. She washed her hands again, put on gloves, put the contacts in. My turn. The next thing I'm going to do is set up an IV line. It'll have two things connected to it. Fluids, for if the monitors say you get dehydrated, and the stars. He stayed silent, but held out his arm for me to start the line. He had easy veins close to the surface. As I stepped forward, he pulled his arm back. Does anyone turn it down? I'm not much for drugs, to be honest. Smoked a little this or that in my day, but it's not my thing. Before I could start my spiel, Maggie interrupted. You don't have to take it if you don't want. It's not mandatory. No, it's not mandatory, but STARS enhances the experience. I glared at Maggie. It's not addictive. It doesn't give you feelings you don't already have. But if you're feeling patriotic for doing your duty today, it's going to flood you with all those great emotions if you're nervous, it'll calm you down. It'll make the day pass a little quicker, too. You may not think you need it, but trust me, it's a long day without it. He nodded. Can you repeat that out loud? Yes. I'll take the drug. He'd already signed the consent form and waivers, but verbal acknowledgement was required. It helped with something like the day before, I suppose. If anyone reviewed the prep vid, it would show we hadn't coerced her into anything. Here we go. I checked the levels on the pump and started it going. Can you recite the Pledge of Allegiance for me? Stain spread at his armpits and chest as he began, but Danny M. Tawarira could edit that out in post if the garment didn't dry fast enough. By the time he got to the Republic, he was grinning and glassy. Here we go. Maggie took his hand. He followed her like a child. Flag walking, I said into my two-way as I followed them with the IV cart. Flag walking confirmed. Came three more voices. Installation, camera, post, Installation met us at the hall's end. 
It was their job to get him out there and secure him. Their job to hide the IV stand in the pole itself, and once everything was settled, to raise the platform. I watched my monitor for the go light. At sunrise, the anthem began to play, and the platform rose. The flag wept as he ascended. I, I checked his levels to make sure I hadn't overdone the drug, but he was just an emotional guy. This view, he shouted when the anthem ended. Nobody mentioned the view. He gave a ragged, joyful scream. Not the most dignified flag. He'd settle in a moment. Check me out, granddad! Or not. Given the flag's age, I assumed his grandfather was deceased. His grandfather probably would have been surprised we had one daily human flag now instead of zillions of cloth ones and bumper stickers and hats and boxer shorts that devalued the symbol. That's what I learned, anyway, between school and job training. Somewhere in those in-between years, a flag representing the people had become a flag that was literally the people with the right to say anything they wanted while they were up there. I remembered my own excitement when I turned 18 and got my automatic voter registration and flag registration in the mail. It said I could opt out, but who would? A lifetime stipend? A chance at a reckoning between yourself and your country 60 feet in the air overlooking the country's greatest monuments? The day my registration arrived, I considered the astronomical odds and decided that if I'd likely never get chosen, the next best thing would be to work in the flag center and watch other people take their turn. So, here I was, watching a man talk to his dead grandfather, watching his body sort out endorphins and synthetic stars and everything else, and wondering how Maggie could complain about this glorious experience we got to make happen. I looked over at her. She was frowning. You seeing a problem? I asked. She had one eye on the suit readout and one on the real-time screen. Nah, it's not that. Are you listening to him? I tuned him out, sorry, thinking, why, what'd he say? He's chatting away. I Did you hear that thing he said in prep? Which thing? I tried to rewind the prep in my head, but nothing stood out. He still owes 20000 on the semi sitting in his driveway. The last company hiring human drivers shifted to self-driving, and they promised to retrain him, but they keep canceling the trainings. That's what he should be saying up there, not babbling. He, he can say whatever he wants. That's what's beautiful. A whole day to say anything he wants, except he's drugged to his eyeballs and he can't get those words back. His choice, Maggie. I did everything by the book. Now, it didn't sound like an accusation, but it still felt like she was leaving me blame for something between this day and the day before. His choice? But when was the last time someone chose to go without stars? Everyone talks it up, this amazing non-addictive high... And that's the thing getting people excited, instead of the chance to speak to the entire country. It would be a rough day without it, Mag. All those hours, the indignity, the diaper. 
they'd say whatever they wanted to say, and if they'd still have an entire day to get through. We'd watch their stress levels rise without the ability to adjust them. They'd get hungry and thirsty. The IV would itch. They'd flinch when birds landed on them. This way, they spend the day feeling amazing, and they go home knowing it was an amazing day. She sighed. I get what you're saying. It just seems like this isn't what was intended. How many even know they had the option to address people? When was the last time somebody did that? The flag and the stars both came in at the same time. It's always been a choice. What was anyone ever encouraged to take the opportunity? It's a waste to do it for a high. I, I was getting frustrated. It's not just for a high, you know that. They get paid well. They get press when they go back home. So if there's something they didn't say up there, they can still say it if they want to, to their hometown news, if their hometown still has local news outlets, and if anyone's paying attention. It's not the same platform. And who knows what will make it to air. Neither of us was going to convince the other. I pretended I needed the bathroom and called for a tech to watch my monitors. She didn't say anything more when I returned. The flag made it through the day in the usual fashion. When he got back to us, he was quieter than he'd been in the morning. The drug was wearing off, and he'd worn his voice ragged, singing through the afternoon, still more talkative than most. That was quite a thing, he rasped. Quite a thing. Yes, sir. I said as I drained the colors. You're a lucky man. A lucky man, he repeated. A lone tear rolled down his cheek. Are you okay, sir? Yeah. I... You're right, I'm lucky. Lost my job a few months ago when my company automated... Haven't been able to find any place willing to let me and my old Kenworth haul anymore. This money's going to make a huge difference. I shot Maggie a look that said, see? But she was giving me the same look. We didn't talk while he showered, and then we both busied ourselves checking him over one last time before the driver took him back to his hotel. I cleaned my station, and when I looked up, she was gone. The next day was Friday, the start of our three-day weekend. The 4-3-3-4 schedule had always been a nice perk. On the longer weekends, I sometimes drove home to see my family. The shorter breaks were good for relaxing, playing games, exploring the city. I tried to forget the argument with Maggie since I still didn't entirely get it. Monday morning, I headed back to work with a fresh head, but... I was surprised to find Saya Peters from the opposite shift at Maggie's suit station. Maggie out sick? I asked. I don't know, he said. My supervisor asked me last week if I'd work an extra day today. Weird, but she hadn't said anything if she knew she'd be out. I tried to remember if she'd given any hint. Not that she had to, but we tended to mention it if we had something going on that broke the schedule. I set up my station, prepping the colors and the stars. We were expected to arrive an hour before the day's flag rather than risking a train being late and us hitting the ground rushed. A rushed flag was an anxious flag. 
Thirty minutes before sunrise, Isabel opened the door from medical and ushered in the day's flag. Maggie. Maggie was the flag. She crossed the room unsmiling and sat in my prep chair without waiting for me to tell her to do so. She wore painter's overalls and a spattered t-shirt. Both had likely started out white. They technically met the standard, though I'd never seen anyone show up in such disarray. I didn't know, she said. I didn't tell you. Are you going to get started? Everything was upside down. I looked at my trays like I'd never seen them before. Ah, sure, in a, a minute I'm... I'm going to start the colors. You'll feel a tiny jab. She presented her arm to me. I didn't usually get nervous, but this time I fumbled the syringe. I regathered myself to give a smooth injection. We both watched as the colors took over her skin, mingling her brown with red, white, and blue without losing it. That's... Pretty cool from this perspective, she whispered. I've always thought it would be, I said. Maggie looked over at her station where Sias stood waiting. He smiled. Do you want me to do the whole speech? I don't want to patronize, but I don't want you to miss out if you want the full experience. I'd be disappointed if you didn't. Her eyes fixed beyond him at something on her desk. Okay, then. He held out the screen suit. I'm going to need you to take off your clothes and put these on. She took the suit from him and disappeared behind the curtain. Saya gave me a panicked look before continuing. You don't need me to engage in supportive conversation, do you? If you were anyone else, I'd tell you how to put on the mag now. But I'm going to assume you know that, and I tell you the screen suit is delicate and the opening is in the Maggie emerged and turned her back to Saya, who sealed the suit, still looking discomfited. She stroked her hands down her side once, but didn't look at herself the way most people did. I assume you'll put in your own contacts, he asked, holding out the case. She nodded and took them from him. My turn. Again. I found myself going rope because it was easier to say what I was used to than change it up. The next thing I'm going to do is set up an IV. It'll have two things connected to it, fluids for if the monitors say you get hydrated, and the stars. No, she said. Stars enhances the experience. It's not addictive. It doesn't give you... Did you say no? No, she said. Yes to the fluids, no to the drug. Mackie, don't be silly. My choice, no stars. Why? I've been telling you for days. If you don't know, you haven't been listening. What's the point of this if you sleep through it? It's 42 degrees, rainy and winding. It's going to be awful up there. It's supposed to be hard, Lex. It's all gone wrong. She didn't look like she would budge. I have to ask you one more time if you want the stars. You have to say yes, um, no, for me. I did, 
I said no, and I'll say no again. I started the fluids IV without the stars, even though nobody in the entire time I'd been working there had ever said no before. It threw my rhythm off, so I had to check every step of my procedure three times, afraid I'd miss something. Without stars, there was a lot less to do. Are you ready, Maggie? She pointed at a picture on her desk, two teenage boys and a younger one. Have I ever told you about my oldest grandson? I glanced at the clock. Her prep had been quick. No. He got beaten up four months ago by some patriots. She spat that word for saying he thought the curfew was an unevenly enforced. Not even that he hated it, just that he, they kept waiting outside the youth center to catch kids who dawdled walking home. Beaten bloody for pointing out the truth because he said it outside the designated place and time, and the ones who attacked him got their names up in lights. I'm sorry. I didn't know what else to say. We, we should get going. Saya reached for her hand, but she pulled away. He shot me a look. We weren't used to an alert flag. I reached for my radio. Flag walking. Flag walking confirmed came the response in triplicate. I handed off the IV card and returned to my station to watch. At sunrise, the anthem began to play and the platform rose. Maggie stood tall, her jaw clenched. She didn't sing along. In every home, in every business, open this early, around the country, flag screens played this tableau. Maggie was there with them, clear-eyed, biding her time as the anthem ended. She had a whole day to address them, sunrise to sunset. If she pulled it off, our job might be very different from this day on. I'd never really considered what it meant to be a person who'd sacrifice her own comfort to say what she thought needed to be said. I leaned forward. She looked straight into the camera. Wake up. She began. It's time to wake up. Sarah Pinsker's novel, A Song for a New Day, won the Nebula Award for Best Novel, and her collection, Sooner or Later Everything Falls into the Sea, won the Philip K. Dick Award. She has been nominated for the Hugo, Locus, World Fantasy, and more. She lives in Baltimore with her wife and dog. Find her online at sarahpinsker.com and on Twitter at Sarah Pinsker. Writer-performer Stacey Chaikin's full-length solo plays include The Dig, What She Left, and Looking for Louie, Saint Viviana, Pray for Us, and Don't Flinch are part of Yovar, Porciuncula, an ongoing performance excavation of the block where she lives in downtown Los Angeles. This episode was made possible by our Patreon subscribers. Special thanks to Apathy. We hope you enjoy listening to the Kaleidocast as much as we enjoy making it for you. If you are, will you consider joining our Patreon? 
It's a way for you to financially support this podcast with whatever you feel comfortable giving. Right now, the Kaleidocast pays semi-pro rates for original fiction, but we have big dreams. We want to pay more for the authors, narrators, engineers, and artists who make this podcast possible. Won't you join us? Visit patreon.com slash kaleidocastnyc. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash k-a-l-e-i-d-o-c-a-s-t-n-y-c. From all your producers, Bradley, Cam, S-O-A, Joe, Marcus, Marcy, Sam, and Sandra, thank you for supporting the Kaleidocast. Now, wasn't that bracing? Direct action is good for the soul. Bugs are good food. Oh, see? No rhymes. Better already. And King is so rude. Damn it! Nothing is working. Need something stronger. Maybe something from the stacks. King! What are you doing with those cricket stories? I... What? I'm hungry. Go find some real nasherai. That's rescues from Cricket Slush Pile. Poor dears thought they were Sifwa material. Every story deserves a forever home. I can feel them playing Bloody Mary. Speaking of unpleasant curses, what do you know about cures of vampirism, Degamowitz? Let me think, let me think. Vampire studies were folded into the Romero School of Undead Media years ago. Some of the basic texts overlap with the Wickerman Folk Horror Library. In fact, I know a story that might just do the trick. All the Things You Will Never Know by Nikki Smith. And and this would help. I I mean, theoretically. I mean, no one here is a vampire. Who's this for, anyway? Oh, People like us, in places like this. What is that god-awful soundtrack you dragged into my office? The cure for the king? That's not the right thing. Rhyming again, king, if anyone needs this, it's my poor darling. I, I mean, interim Dean Overstreet. Hey, come on, I need that story, give it here. Let go, it's mine. Whoa, whoa, jeez, okay, you can have it. Oh. Little story, don't bite, King. Bite my little boogie-woogie bratty poo. He needs your venom more. All the Things You Will Never Know by Nikki Smith Sybil bites into an apple. She didn't grow up anywhere, as far as she knows. Not in the building, not in the ravine, not in the diner. But you don't have to be from somewhere to go somewhere. Persine told her that one time. Even though Persine and Sybil are both 17, Persine has been in this world longer than Sybil. She gets to tell her how things work. Sybil always listens. Sybil is one of the lucky ones. 
Most people who aren't from anywhere, they have to make up places to be from, to have grown up in, like Salt Lake City or Azerbaijan or Burkina Faso or Berdenikinich. But nobody asks her questions like that. She has no need for answers. Sybil is standing on a street corner outside of the diner thinking about this, hoping Persine will turn up, and she bites into an apple. The apple is as green as her last name, which is green. She shivers while loitering on the corner. She has gone to the store for Gloria and Owen, who take care of her, and who needed pickled watermelon rinds, school glue, and little Vienna sausages. She picked up a few apples while she was at it. She likes the green apples best because they are sour, and sour is good. Sour is like an electric shock to the jaw. It is like being flashed into existence to find yourself standing in the valley of a gorge. Sybil is lingering on the corner waiting for Persine, yes, but also because she doesn't want to go back home. Gloria cleans the apartment top to bottom on Saturdays. The apartment will smell like bleach, which makes her feel lethargic and bleary-eyed. And the air outside is cold but fresh. Crispy is the word that Owen would use. By the time our hands are numb, Sybil Green chalks it up to a loss, heads back to the building. In case you are wondering, Sybil Green might not even be her real name. When you don't come from anywhere specifically, then you can never be sure that your name is your own. It is a strange feeling inhabiting a name that might not belong to you. Sybil wonders who the real Sybil Green might be. Maybe she is a contemporary dance prodigy, or a haunted girl who was exercised by an ordained minister. Maybe she is an amateur dog trainer or pumpkin carver. Maybe she trains pumpkins to carve dog silhouettes into themselves. Maybe she is a commercial space pilot or a professional letter writer with a knack for devising cryptic messages. That last one reminds Sybil of Persine. Her jaw aches. When Sybil gets back to the building, she fingers a metal box in the lobby. It is an impossible-to-unlock metal box. Inside of it is the key to the attic, where nobody is allowed to go. Things can come out of the attic, but absolutely nothing can go in. Persine might be in that place, she thinks, and the thought of that is like falling into the deepest part of her existence, a place that she can't get out of. When Sybil swallows, it feels like there is something stuck in her throat. Sybil shakes away the painful thoughts and starts up the stairs. Lingering in the lobby or hallways could attract diner people, and Sybil is not in the mood to deal with that. The fluorescents are blinking in the stairwell, but very steadily, with a firefly glow. The fluorescents might actually be filled with fireflies, but Sybil has never asked Gloria about that. On Sybil's way up, a black cat comes prowling down the steps, probably from the attic. It rears back on the landing and hisses at Sybil before scampering away. You're back, Gloria says, sponge in hand, when Sybil clicks the door shut. 
She has a scarf tied around her mouth so as not to breathe in fumes directly. Her eyes are bloodshot from all the bleach. Did I give you enough money for all the groceries? Yep. I bought apples. You want one? The bleach. I have bleach on my hands. If you could cut one up, pop a slice into my mouth? Sybil shelves the groceries and cuts up one of the apples. Gloria comes over and opens her mouth like a baby bird. Sybil drops an apple slice in, then goes to her room. She takes a little box out from under her bed, opens her window wide, and creeps onto the fire escape. She zips her coat all the way up and shoulders a blanket around her to keep warm. Not long ago, Priscine painted Sybil's nails spin the bottle. They were sitting on Sybil's fire escape. The night was a bit warmer than this one, and the sky was devoid of stars. It was hard to see, so Sybil held a flashlight over her left hand. The weak moonlight trickled down Persine's dark skin. It was like the most beautiful waterfall Sybil had ever seen. Hmm, that's not quite right. Persine rubbed off spin the bottle, replaced it with avant garment. She painted Sybil's nails all kinds of colors. Fashion playground, where's my chauffeur, udon nomi, exotic liras. Persine was telling Sybil things about water. The longest I ever held my breath underwater was two minutes and thirty seconds. I was swimming through a little underwater tunnel formed by some rocks, and I got stuck. I counted every second while I tried to free myself. I think it was the adrenaline. Here, look. She lifted a long leg out to Sybil and draped it over her lap. She rolled up her sweatpant leg. Sybil pointed the flashlight down. A deep scar ran from Persine's knee down to her ankle. I had to push against the rocks and wrench my leg out, all while holding my breath. Damn. I've never noticed that before. Persine curled her leg back up under her and picked up a new nail polish color. Impenetrable forest. Not to mention it was the first thing I remember. I was nine, and that's where I started. Under the water. I thought you were from Bordinikinich. I might be. It's entirely possible. I don't exactly know where I was. But two and a half minutes. I mean, come on, that's practically unheard of. Maybe you're part fish. Also, pick a color already, I'm cold. Part fish, that sounds like a premise of a TV show. The Amazing Escapades of Fish Girl. The Fishcapades. In a twist of fate, it turns out she is 100% human. What would my show be called? Confessions of an insert insult here. Hmm, asshole maybe? Oh wait, that's you. Sybil gave Persine a friendly push. Persine nudged her back, laughing. They locked eyes for a burning second, and Sybil's stomach flipped. She was almost sure they were going to kiss. But Sybil was always hoping they were going to kiss, and it never happened. Why should this moment have been different? Ugh, finally, Persine said, examining I know what you did next week on Sybil's nails. A color that works. It doesn't matter where Bordenikinich is, but here's the thing about Bordenikinich. It's where the diner people are from.
The diner people live in the building, too, except they are rarely seen. If you do see them outside of the diner, you try not to look at them, and you never talk to them. If you do, they might take an interest in you, and this is never good. Strange smells come from their apartments. Smells that are like fermented cookies. Smells that are like other people's childhood memories. Over the years, Persine has told Sybil all about Bordenikinich. She says that in that place, the sun sets the wrong way. It just rises up and up and up until you can't see it anymore. A sunset is really more like a sunrise. Sybil asked, did that mean that a sunrise is more like a sunset there? No, Persine said. A sunrise is just a sunrise, same as anywhere. Bordenikinich has strange rules that don't quite make sense. No one there is allowed to drink the water. You must hydrate yourself by eating the fruits that grow there, the way gorillas do, because the water in Bordenikinich will turn you into a spirit. And if you drink the spirits in Bordenikinich, well, you are probably drinking your cousin. If you want to pay for something, then you pay for it by spitting in the salesperson's face. The further you can spit, the more merchandise they will give you. It's a totally different mentality there, Persine said casually, like she was describing Parisian culture or something. Since that night on the fire escape, Sybil has painted her nails many other colors. A Midsummer Night's Gravy, Memories at the Pumpkin Patch, Rosemary's Bagel, Two Eggs Over Emerald. Right now, she is wearing Gloria's Hopes and Dreams. Sybil often thinks about all the things Persine has told her about people like them. About false memories and fake names. About telling lies to appear like you had a normal childhood that you can remember. Sybil thinks about Persine, too. The edge of her face where her jaw meets her neck. Her cute ears. Sybil worries about Persine. She worries like she has never worried about anyone. Not even Gloria or Owen. Sitting crisscross on her fire escape... She opens the little box she is holding and takes out a piece of paper. Persine wrote Sybil a letter recently. It says, I know where you came from. Meet me on the corner outside the diner after sunset. XO, Persine. Sybil had stood on the corner that night for three hours. She went into the diner for eggs and bacon. She came out again. She has stood there in the freezing cold for at least a couple hours each of the past three evenings since. Persine is gone. She isn't in her apartment, or at the library, or at the grocery store. She has disappeared completely, and what is worse, no one seems to remember her. No one cares. Gloria and Owen vaguely remember a tall girl with big curly hair, a girl who came over often and stayed for dinner but they can't be sure. How could they be sure about a thing like that, they say. Sybil would like to find Persine more than anything. If Sybil Green were a hero, she thinks, she would have already found her by now. She dreams about the real Sybil Green sometimes, the one who was born and grew up the normal way. This Sybil Green has specific memories like taking a family vacation to Arizona and sleeping in an RV, calling AAA when they blow a tire on Route 66. 
She takes salsa lessons after school, and occasionally she rides horses. She loves horse novels. She does perfect cartwheels on a dock behind a lake house in summer and backflips into the water. She also kisses a girl on her fire escape, a girl she thinks she is in love with. In Sybil's dreams, Sybil Green gets everything she ever wanted. So, it has been a little over three days since Persine slipped the note under her door. Or is it a love letter? It could be a love letter in disguise, what with that XO in the signature. Sybil is telling herself that the only reason she wants to find Persine is to get some answers. Deep down, though, Sybil wants to find out whether or not Persine like-likes her. Do friends actually fall in love? Friends are always falling in love in the movies, but the movies are stupid. Even Sybil knows this, and she saw her very first movie only five years ago. She is tired of thinking about all of this. She feels like her brain is a broken record. Except that isn't right. It's more like a record that isn't broken. It's just that someone's idea of music was to write a song composed of broken record noises. So Sybil decides what to do with Persine's not-love letter. Owen, who is in the bleach-scented living room right now, will tell you a secret if you give him something treasured and sentimental, like a confidential wish or a grandfather's pocket watch. The nice part is that it doesn't even have to be your own grandfather's pocket watch. It could be your neighbor's grandfather's pocket watch or your bully's grandfather's pocket watch. It doesn't always have to be a pocket watch. It just usually is. Owen is watching television, old black-and-white movies. Them, The Brain, Nosferatu. Sybil sits down next to him. Gloria is in the big recliner knitting some large thing. Owen says, still looking for your friend? Still pretending it's Halloween? Always. Halloween is pure gold. Every other holiday is just fool's gold. I saw him the other day, Sybil says, pointing at the vampire. Well, fancy that, Owen says. It's true. Sybil has seen Nosferatu come down from the attic. Some other things that Sybil has seen include a witch's broomstick, a flutter of butterflies, some flying butter, a giant dish of aspic filled with black forest ham, a floating Weimariner, her seventh grade report card, a confused bartender, an undiscovered Picasso from his blue period, a brainless scarecrow, a worried lion, a squeaky robot man, and a girl with a little dog and a very ugly pair of red shoes. I have a question, Sybil says. Ah, that'll cost you. Sybil hands him Persine's note. Without examining it, Owen tucks it into his shirt pocket. He pats the pocket protectively. What's your question, sweet pea? Where is Bordenikinich? because I'm pretty sure that's where my friend is. I can't tell you that, says Owen. I can't tell you that because I don't know. Sorry, sweetie, that's a tough question, Gloria chimes in from behind mounds of yellow wool. Ask me another, Owen says. Okay. Are the lights in the building made of fireflies? What do you think, Owen says. Sybil thinks that, yes, they are made of fireflies, but she doesn't say this. She leans her head against Owen's shoulder and watches Count Orlok gorge himself on a woman's blood before vanishing in a puff of smoke.
Later in the night, Sybil is trying to sleep. She turns over in bed, and there is Persine. Persine is sitting up, holding a pen and a book of crosswords. Hey, Persine says, what has four legs in the morning, three in the afternoon, and two in the evening? Where have you been? Sybil says. Help me out and I'll tell you. Sybil shakes her head and smiles at her friend, whom she is still relatively sure she is in love with. First of all, that question is wrong. It should be switched. Two legs in the afternoon and three in the evening. The answer is a person. Nope, I read it correctly, and the answer is clearly a whole suckling pig. There are only five spaces, though. Sybil stifles a laugh. Where'd you get that book? And how are you suddenly here? You know what, Persine says, I'm just gonna write bacon. Good enough. She scribbles in the little crossword book, and Sybil watches her. Sybil watches the way that she twirls one of her curls, which are shiny now, like wax. Okay, so what? Okay, Sybil, Persine lies down. You and I, we're like two halves of a book. I'm the beginning, and you're the end. What about the middle? It's a very short book. Your point being? I'm not really sure. Well, you know I've never liked reading, Sybil says. Persine's skin is starting to shine like wax as well, and Sybil is less and less positive that she is really here. She takes Persine's cold hand and holds it. Why did you leave? Did I leave? You did, but it's okay. I forgive you. Persine wraps Sybil up in her arms, strong, like she is gathering up the ocean. Sybil can taste the salt on her cheek. Sybil could fall asleep like this. You never told me where you went. Silence. She dreams that she is the real Sybil Green, and she lives in a wax museum. When she opens the kitchen pantry, it is filled with suckling pig. Gloria has turned into a bird. She opens her mouth for food. Sybil chews and spits pork into Gloria's little maw. She opens another door and finds a staircase leading down into darkness. She walks down the steps and wakes up alone. When Sybil comes into the kitchen, Owen is cooking breakfast. It smells like bacon. When I was a kid back in Galway, my mam cooked me pancakes and bacon every weekend. The short stack special. We spread caramelized condensed milk on top of the pancakes and made a face using the bacon. I liked that salty-sweet mumbo-jumbo. He is talking at no one in particular. Sybil has heard all these stories before. Orange juice, anyone? says Gloria. She is squeezing oranges with her hands, digging her fingers deep into the pulp meat. Sybil used to wonder about her possible childhood. She wondered if she is an orphan with severe amnesia. Maybe she was the daughter of refugees from a massive war and repressed all her memories. Or maybe she was the child of scientists who had been tampering with the laws of life, the universe, and everything. But she doesn't believe any of that. She would feel it somewhere deep inside her, an intuition. But all that Sybil feels deep down is a profound sense of nothing. After breakfast, Sybil says that she is going out. Gloria stops her before she can leave. She is breathing heavily, as if she has just run a very long way to tell Sybil something important. Here, she pants, take this. 
Gloria holds out a knit scarf, yellow. Kind of hideous. You might need it. I already have a scarf, Sybil says. No, you will probably need this one. It is much, much warmer, Gloria says. Owen has started crying. Sybil has the feeling that she is embarking on a long journey without meaning to. She has the feeling that she is not the first person who has lived with Gloria and Owen. Out of nowhere, Sybil is remembering something. She is remembering a time. This was a few years ago. This was when she was still new to the world. Well, she was eating at the diner. Something salty and crispy. It isn't all that clear now. The diner person, the server, dropped her a check. Gloria hadn't given Sybil enough money. Gloria always underestimated the prices of goods and services. But Sybil recalled what Persine had told her about the diner people, who are from Bordinikinich. She spit in the server's face. Now, this is the part that Sybil is amazed she has forgotten until now. The spot where Sybil's saliva landed became a black nothingness that spread across the diner person's cheek. The diner person jolted and leaned in too close, and Sybil could see that the black hole was pulsating. It was moving like waves in the dark. Child, how long can you hold your breath underwater? She whisper-screamed at Sybil. Her eyes were glossy gray cataracts. Sybil was pretty sure she was blind. How stupid can you be? Then the diner person server stuck a finger into that dark hole and stretched her skin back into place. She let Sybil leave without paying. She even walked Sybil to the door. The next part of this memory finds Sybil waking up in bed with a warm spot spreading under her. Sybil chews on these memories now as she stands in the doorway of her apartment. Goodbye. Sybil says to the only parents she has ever known these past five years. She loves them very, very much, and that is something she's certain of. I'll be back soon, she adds. That only makes Owen cry harder. Gloria, catching her breath, wraps a scarf around Sybil's neck. It is huge. Sybil walks down the narrow corridor, past three apartments belonging to diner people. Sybil smells something that reminds her of penny-pinching during the Great Depression, drinking cheap coffee to stay warm, and eating potatoes to fill stomachs. She smells the smell of a father going out to buy cigarettes and never coming home again. She smells rotting carrot cake. Sybil stops outside Persine's door. She kneels down and checks for shadows. She puts her ear against the wood. There is a rustling in there, the smell of acetone. Sybil knocks. Persine, she says. Are you in there? There is nothing for a minute, and then the door opens and a diner person steps out. Sybil looks at the ground as they pass by. She makes sure to catch the door before it closes. There is nothing inside Persine's apartment. There is no furniture, no food. There are no books, no keepsakes or personal effects or photographs. Sybil has never been in here before. She doesn't know if this is normal or not. Sybil sits on the floor in the entryway. She clutches her face and cries. As the salty tears run down her skin, she paints her nails with the polish color that has been laid out for her. It is called All the Things You Will Never Know. 
Sybil walks with her freshly painted nails up and up the stairs until they dead end at the one final door. There are shadows moving back and forth under the door, but there are always shadows moving under there. This is nothing new. Many attics are famous for being dark, but this one emits an alien glow. It frames the doorway, a literal silver lining. The door looks like it's made of wood, but it feels cold and smooth and slippery like metal. Sybil tries the doorknob. Of course it doesn't open. Nothing can get in. The door cannot be broken down or taken off. It has no hinges. So Sybil goes downstairs and takes the metal box, the one with the attic key in it, off the lobby table. The keys jangle around when she shakes it. Its edges are sharp. She bangs it against the table. She throws it at the wall, smashes it on the floor. It doesn't break. It isn't even dented. A giant tarantula skitters down the steps. It pauses in front of her and raises a leg in greeting. Sybil stares at it, panting in exhaustion. She looks down and sees that her hands are bleeding. The very first thing Sybil can remember is standing in a deep ravine. There is shallow water there, flowing around her. She is twelve, that she is sure of. There is no way for her to climb up the cliffside, so she must follow the water to its end. She walks and she walks and she walks, never stopping. The next thing she remembers is being in the building. She goes and knocks on Gloria and Owen's door, and they let her in. They ask her what her name is, and she tells them it is Sybil Green. There are no memories before this one, because this is the moment that Sybil came into the world. Sometimes Sybil doesn't know whether or not this is her real memory at all. How could she be positive? Sybil is standing on the corner outside of the diner. It is cold outside, but her scarf is too warm. She unwraps it from her neck and clutches it in her bloodied hands. One of the diner people steps out of the side door, which is attached to the kitchen. He sits on top of a garbage can and lights a cigarette. His facial expression is a mixture of the final round in a poker championship and standing on hot coals. Hey, Sybil says. The diner person just sits there. He takes the longest drag on a cigarette Sybil has ever seen. It is astounding. I know that you know where Persine is. She told me to meet her here almost four days ago. She had some really important information to tell me, too. But when I got here, she was gone. Don't lie to me, because I know that you took her. You are one of the others. And I need her. I need to see her. He says nothing. He lets all that smoke out of his mouth, and it drips out slowly like a tiny waterfall. Sybil is really scared now. You aren't supposed to talk to or look at the diner people. That's the one rule. And she has already, maybe, broken it once before. His expression is unnatural. She doesn't know what it means. He smells like the memory of a family trip to the pumpkin patch. Whose memory is this? It smells rotten on him. He jumps off the trash can and flicks his half-smoked cigarette into the street. Before he goes back through the kitchen door, he turns and motions for Sybil to follow him. The fear that grips Sybil hardens and turns into something different. She feels it in her throat. It wants to come up. 
Sybil coughs it up and sees that it is a stone, a stone that she can grip as she follows the diner person to wherever he is taking her. They shuffle through the cramped kitchen, filled with dirty dishes and bacon. Sybil looks through the order window and sees all the customers eating their breakfasts. The diner people serve them waffles with whipped cream, bacon, egg, and cheese sandwiches, oatmeal, hash browns, and toast. Someone is in the corner booth, and she has egg yolk and maple syrup all around her mouth. She's eating without her hands, like a dog. It is the server, the one with the hole in her face that wouldn't stop opening until she closed it. Sybil looks into her blind eyes. The server stands up and comes toward them. The diner person continues guiding Sybil to the very back of the kitchen, where there is a red door. At this point, the server is right there with them, along with ten other diner people. Sybil never even saw them approach. The diner person, the smoker, opens the red door. Everyone shuffles in, lining up two by two, except Sybil, who is at the back of the line by herself. They are at the top of a dark, spiraling staircase. Sybil grips the pebble tightly. Dim sconces line the walls at periodic intervals, but the light is hardly enough to see by. Anybody got some kind of light? Sybil says. The pack descends slowly, around and down and down and around. The diner people don't turn to make sure Sybil is following, but she follows anyway. At a certain point, the descent becomes ridiculous and unbearable. How much further until we get to Percine? The diner people don't answer. They aren't big on talking. The lights are dimming more and more the further down they get. The steps are bulky and cumbersome. Everything is made of big, gray, medieval stone, and the air is damp and cold. When there is barely enough light to see, the pack stops moving. They stand in front of her, twelve diner people two by two. They are like a fleet of corrupt, spooky reindeer, and she is the most unfortunate Santa Claus who ever lived. What gives, Sybil says, and regrets it immediately. In perfect unison, the diner people turn their heads oh so slowly, which also happens to be the first nail polish color Sybil ever used. Their faces, they have opened up. In the darkness, she is like a heart stuck in the wet inside of a body, where there is never any light. The diner people's not faces press on Sybil until they are gone, and she is pretty sure she's been reduced to the second dimension. Oh shit, she thinks. Now I'm blind. And then it is over. The sky looks like clouded glass, a dirty window. The rocks rise high above her, and the water licks at her feet. She is alone. She knows this place. There is no way up. There is only Ford. Sometimes, she thinks, there is only Ford. Sybil drops her pebble into the shallow water. It falls on top of hundreds of pebbles that look exactly the same. It is so cold here, impossibly cold. Sybil wraps her Gloria scarf around her, yellow and bloodstained and ugly and beautiful. Its warmth swells and swells. Sybil is sure now that Gloria knew where she was going, knew she would need a scarf that could provide this kind of warmth. She flanks the cliff side of the ravine, walks in the same direction as the water's current, forward until a door appears on the horizon. 
She walks for hours. She walks for days. The sun rises and rises and then rises again. The door zooms closer slowly, so slowly. Her feet are blistered from the rocks because her shoes have worn through. The door, when Sybil reaches it, is cold and hard and slippery. Sybil tries the doorknob, but it will not turn. She is not allowed out. She is not allowed in. Sybil cries fresh tears. She feels like she is becoming the color of the saddest shade of nail polish imaginable. Sybil is thinking of Persine. In all of this, she has never stopped thinking of her. Maybe Persine's returned to wherever she came from, and maybe she was never really there at all. Sybil is in love with her. She knows that now. But she supposes she doesn't necessarily need to find her anymore. Sybil Green doesn't need Persine to tell her where she is from, that she is from Bordenikinich, from the attic. She already knows. After a few minutes, Sybil turns from the door. She wipes her eyes before the tears have time to freeze, and starts a long walk backward, toward where she believes will be the center of Bordenikinich. Sometimes there is only forward, yes, but secretly, there is always backward. She may not need to find Persine, but she wants to. Sybil braces herself for the journey back. She has never felt more at home. Nikki Caffier-Smith lives in Brooklyn with her partner and their two cats. Her poetry has been published in Typishly. J.M. Plumbly writes fantasy, horror, and a blog about monsters. She is an active member of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers and a proud graduate of the Odyssey Writing Workshop. The bulk of her spare time is spent defending her keyboard from her cat. Find her online at jmplumbly.com. This episode was made possible by our Patreon subscribers. Special thanks to Deodat Bilbudar. Thank you for listening to The Kaleidocast, a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers, who can be found at bsfwriters.com. Your hosts are Marcy Arlen as Calliope DeGamowitz, Bradley Robert Parks as Brad Overstreet, Cameron Roberson as James Earl King II, and Sam Schreiber as Sam Spellingbound. Our music is Delusion of the Fury, Act 2, Treats with Life and with Life Despite Life, Arrest, Trial, and Judgment, Joy in the Marketplace, by Harry Parch, used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation. Our audio was engineered by Kyle Fink and Atticus Garten. This podcast uses many sound effects from YouTube, freesound.org, and from FreeSFX at freesfx.co.uk. Special thanks go out to Mike Allen, Zigzag Claiborne, CSE Cooney, Alpha Daily Majors, Wilson Fowley, Tatiana Gomberg, Julia D. Guzman, Carlos Hernandez, Gary Benjamin Holt Jr., Adeodat Ilbudo Roberson, Larissa De Lima, Marco Palmieri, and Diana Foe. The Kaleidocast and all its contents are protected by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License, which means you can share it all you want, but don't sell it or change it, and give credit to the Kaleidocast and its authors. If you like what you hear, please leave a review on iTunes or comment on our website at kaleidocast.nyc, which is where you can find links to all our contributors.